therapist, a chaplain, a guru, a psychoanalyst, a missionary, and a university counselor walk into a bar. And what happens? They all sit down and have a wonderful discussion on the Religious Studies Project. Um, I just read um, Kritika's introduction um, to her podcast today with Dr. Christopher Harding about religion and the side disciplines, and I thought it was going to be the start of an epic joke. Um, you'll have to listen to the podcast and find out, though. We're the Religious Studies Project. He's David Robertson. He's Christopher Cotter. And here's Kritika. A therapist, a chaplain, a guru, a psychoanalyst, a missionary, a university counsellor. How do these figures interact? In a milieu where meditations take place as part of church services and where mental health services incorporate a spiritual dimension, the relationship between religion and the psi disciplines, psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, bears thinking about. Speaking to us today about religion and the psi disciplines, we have Dr. Christopher Harding, who is a lecturer in Asian history at the University of Edinburgh. Chris is a cultural historian working primarily in Japan and India. He has most recently published a co-edited volume on religion and psychotherapy in modern Japan, which was published in hardback in 2014 and comes out in paperback next month. Chris is also a journalist who has collaborated with the BBC, and he was one of BBC Radio 3's New Generation Thinkers. Thank you for being here with the Religious Studies Project, Chris. Thank you. Um, just to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about the Psy Disciplines? Yes. Uh, so when we use the phrase the Psy Disciplines, I guess we're normally thinking of uh, psychiatry, uh, psychology and psychotherapy. So psychiatry, I suppose, often thought about as the poor relation of um, medicine. It's the discipline of medicine that most people wouldn't immediately think of going into. Maybe now, but a few years ago, certainly, I suppose, prior to the 1950s, it was a discipline associated with um, guesswork, with kind of heaving asylums with people that were very difficult to treat, um, really because their object of inquiry is so difficult, the human in a life, trying to guess at it, finding ways of uh, examining it from the outside or making some use of people's own testimonies. Very, very difficult to try to work out what's going on, very difficult to try to um, form theories, to form diagnoses. Um, things improved, I suppose, in the 1950s and 60s with new forms of drugs, and now with new means of scanning, new sorts of theories, things are getting a little bit better. Um, but for a while, as I say, yeah, med medicine's poor relation. Psychology, most people will um, know of, uh, working with experimental data primarily, but also doing some work in a clinical setting. And then psychotherapy, I suppose, really from um, Freud, Jung onwards, Carl Rogers, and now we have any number of modalities. So those three things um, working together, often we would call them, I suppose, the side disciplines. And each one has had its own sort of relationship. Um, with different religious traditions in different parts of the world. How has this rela relationship traditionally been conceived? Um, I suppose early on, I mean, the, the, the period that I work on most is the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. Mm. Um, early on, I suppose there was a relationship of some hostility, especially, I suppose, with Sigmund Freud and with early Freudians who... I mean, we know Sigmund Freud had his particular views on what religion uh, is really all about. 
Um, but also, some people would say that perhaps his views were more nuanced than he's often given credit for. But some of the people early on who were attracted to psychoanalysis were attracted to it as a way of fulfilling the good parts of religion, distilling and fulfilling the good parts of religion, getting rid of the rest, and helping people whose lives had been damaged very early on, often by um, religious upbringings, particularly if there was kind of harshness in the family background, a heavy emphasis on certain forms of behaviour, a kind of moralising dynamic, etc. Lots of people would say in that early generation of psychoanalysis, the kind of thing that Richard Dawkins says, I suppose, which is that religion is child abuse. Yeah. Um, and so from the religious side of things, people worried that that critique could become quite influential. They also worried that the human person was being reduced to um, a mere organism or a mere um, machine or that your personhood was really you know, the outcome of your upbringing. So they thought there were all sorts of reductions going on that really threatened the underpinnings of um, all sorts of different religious traditions. But I suppose particularly... Um, Christian traditions in the West were the ones who were initially uh, objecting to people like Freud, but also psychology in general, because the whole premise of psychology to them seemed wrong, that you can meaningfully study the human person um, purely in a natural scientific way. And so this is the context from which you are, in some ways, your own work departs. Is that right? Yes, that, that, that's right. I suppose um, it's partly from a professional historical back, uh, context, but it's also partly because I was coming across work in um, Christianity and Buddhism, contemporary Christianity and Buddhism in the US and Japan, the UK and elsewhere, where there seemed to be this mixing and mingling of what seemed to me to be psychological language, talk about the emotional life, theories of childhood on the one hand, and um, your kind of standard religious stories, theories, theologies, philosophies on the other. And I wasn't really sure what people were doing when they were mixing these two languages. Often you would get a, um, a kind of an opening pitch from an apologist for a particular religious tradition where they would say, you know, come surely your life is a mess. There must be more to this. You must be suffering, stressed, you're angry, you hurt people. And then they kind of shift into the pitch, the religious pitch. Later, I mean, you see that in, in uh, plenty of Christian traditions, books of Dalai Lama, Japanese organizations do the same sort of thing. Um, and I was just wondering what is, what exactly, what exactly is their view of being human? Um, that they're mixing these two things together, these two, even three or four registers of, of language, um, together in trying to make a pitch for people. Is the kind of emotional, psychological, a sort of, uh, a facade? Is it just that initial pitch to get people interested? Or are these worlds actually doing business in a way that could be very interesting and very fruitful? And I wanted to find a way of almost taking them to task, piecing their language apart and saying, well, where are you getting these bits and pieces from? What do you actually mean when you talk about what the emotional life is, what the significance of the emotional life is, how we might read it in a religious or a spiritual way? Um, and I was really looking around for ways of doing that, digging away really at some of the language of contemporary religion and spirituality. While also seeing them as part of a, a larger marketplace might not be the right word, but certainly all of them as part of this, a milieu together. 
So the language is shared, but they're also part of the same network. You used the word business, them doing business with each other. Mm. Yes, I think so. There was a great book came out 10 years or so ago, Richard King and Jeremy Corrett, Selling Spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful book, which really helped to get me thinking about this. I think one of the things they were concerned about is that... Um, I think it was, it was broader than the kind of mental health dynamic, which, which interests me, but it was this sort of critique of uh, late capitalist culture that exploits religious traditions for um, techniques or ideas that kind of keep people going mm-hmm. as effective producers and consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that element to it, I suppose, as well. And the sense of doing business together, I think we, we can get into some of the history of this um, a, a little, little bit later on. But I suppose my basic take on it is that there are very positive ways in which they can do business, the, the side disciplines and various religious traditions, and they have been um, since the 1940s, 1950s at least, once this kind of initial um, Freudian hump or Freudian coldness between them was overcome. But there are also ways in which they can be um, antagonistic or quite confusing, possibly quite manipulative when they're used together. I suppose a, a prime example that some listeners may have heard of would be the Om Shinrikyo Sarin attacks on the Tokyo underground in 1995. Um, Om Shinbikyo talked about as being the love child of Buddhism and pop psychology. Um, that kind of all-encompassing um, embrace of the world, all-encompassing um, take on the human person, which really reeled in quite a few people and you get into the territory of, some people might say, brainwashing, I suppose, but certainly having such an all-encompassing explanation of the world that it's kind of hard to fight your way out of it again. That's potentially what the religion and side disciplines, I suppose, do when they work together, is that they give you no other interpretive options. Almost anything that you might think or feel or desire or do can be quite convincingly interpreted interpreted by this uber framework that together they seem to create. And for that reason, it can have, I think, negative as well as positive consequences. It's also worth talking about the, the kind of tensions that you brought up, but I thought that before we get to a, a, a more in-depth analysis of the tensions, we could also talk about the what you've talked about, the two-way dialogue mm. that happens between the side disciplines and religion. Um, what did you mean by two-way dialogue? Um, I suppose that they find useful things in one another. So some of the more positive bits of dialogue in terms of say um, a Buddhist tradition we maybe talk about Japan in this regard um, Buddhist traditions making use of the modern side disciplines um, you get this you get this trend I suppose around Asia certainly in India certainly in um, Japan in the late 19th century where countries that have been very much affected by European colonialism um, whether it's as it were, boots on the ground, or it's more of a kind of cultural imperialism. They're looking for ways of pushing back against colonial knowledge, against the whole sort of Western canon, as it were. And what some groups do, I think you may be Swami Vivekananda in India, a neo-Hinduism, um, a guy called Inoue Enryo in Japan, who's a, what you might call a Buddhist modernist. What they do is, is they look back into their own traditions and they say, well, you know, actually within Buddhism, within Hinduism, you will find insights that match and trump those um, of the Western world. And that one of the ways in which we can state that case quite clearly to people is by spring cleaning Buddhism, spring cleaning Hinduism, reviving our religious traditions, but in a kind of viable modern format. And 
someone like Inu Enri or finds the side disciplines really useful for that. Because it's actually, you know, what we can do is we can separate out true mystery, the true mysteries of life from the false ones. Psychology will tell us what the false ones are because we can investigate people's patterns of thought and we can find out why they believe in silly things like ghosts or goblins. That then leaves them free to redirect human wonderment and awe and faith and trust to true mystery. So it's good for people, it's good for a Buddhist tradition because tradition that looks to be anti-modern in Japan can suddenly represent itself as being definitively modern and being worthy of people's trust and their taxes. Um, and at the same time, you can say Buddhism actually in its own right is the world's finest psychology uh, and always has been. And you see, of course, lots of people now who engage with Buddhism will say, first and foremost, it's a very convincing picture of, of what it's like to be a human being. It's first and foremost a psychology, and then we'll take it from there. You might want to then call it a religion, or you, you might not. But you can borrow in those sorts of ways. Christian tradition, some examples of how the Christian tradition, I suppose, is borrowed from the side disciplines, is in forms of spiritual direction, which are open to the influence of someone's um, upbringing on the way they think about God, on the way they process guilt, on the way they worry about sin. Doesn't mean that you're jettisoning all the teaching in the Christian tradition on these things, but it means you're more aware of, of how human beings work and that you can help people who might be stuck. So now, um, lots of monks and nuns, priests and others will get a certain degree of, as it were, basic counseling training so that they can help people. I mean, things might get to a point where they need to refer on perhaps to a therapist or a psychiatrist. Um, but these basic learnings can actually be very, very useful, uh, in their work. Um, on the Buddhism example specifically, I wanted to ask a little bit about Kosawa Hisaku, who you speak about a bit in your in your book, referring to him as the father of modern psychoanalysis in Japan. Is that is that mm. is that accurate? Yes, that? absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I was really interested to see a kind of example in the flesh of mixing Buddhism, Shin Buddhism in in particular, mm. with. Freudian ideas of psychoanalysis and the way he used both of those traditions to create his own practice. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, um, very, very brief potted biography, I suppose. Um, Kosawa Heisaku was um, a student of psychiatry first uh, in northern Japan in the 1920s. He encountered psych uh, psychoanalysis a little bit through one of his mentors who'd studied in the US, but Kosawa uh, wasn't really convinced with the way he was teaching it. So he actually went to Vienna, uh, met Freud, worked with Freud and his circle in Vienna only really for a year or so. Um, and he had an analysis there. Then he came back to Japan, opened his own clinic in um, Tokyo. And this was where he seems to have started to develop this kind of fusion of the two. It seems to have been the case with him that he saw Buddhism in Japan as being under threat. Um, and he wanted to find a way of a little bit like Inoue Enryo, a guy I mentioned a little while earlier, um, wanted to find a way of showing people uh, what Buddhism really aimed at, what Buddhism was really about. Um, and on an individual basis, he wanted to help his clients work towards really an experience that some people would say has a fair, a fair bit in common with um, enlightenment. His theory was basically that if a client is in psychoanalysis for a certain period of time, they have a kind of releasing of all sorts of material from um, the unconscious bit by bit, which gives them a certain amount of freedom. But what it also does is it shows them something that's 
absolutely key in Shin Buddhism, which is that human beings are right down to the ground, um, corrupted, um, that we cannot really achieve anything useful in terms of our own salvation for ourselves and by ourselves, that we need the help of what Shin Buddhism talks about as other power, um, Amida Buddha. It's all right to discuss that in conceptual terms, in philosophical terms, but it doesn't get you there. So Kusawa's idea was that actually one of the things that does get you there, that goes beyond a philosophical conversation about these things, is to be face-to-face with a therapist, to tell them all the things you've done, all the things you're thinking, all the things you secretly want. To get into all that material, you suddenly see the reality of your, your corruptness and your helplessness. And by doing that, by seeing that, almost you can't help yourself. By going through that process, then you open yourself out onto realizing that you need to rely completely upon other power, which is a key goal for Shin Buddhists. Almost like a, it sounds almost like an involuntary confession. Mm. I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Because while that's a lovely way of putting it, because while confession is, is voluntary, you're still in control mm-hmm. of the terms, aren't you? Mm-hmm. It's only when you come face to face with things that you really don't have any control over, that you finally feel helpless in the face of. That's the real moment uh, of conversion for Kosawa and Asian Buddhism. Um, so that is how Kosawa sees the usefulness of psychoanalysis. He told one of his students, who I interviewed as part of my work, that unless psychoanalysis can bring people to that kind of an experience, then um, it'll never succeed in Japan or anywhere else, actually. Uh, and now in Japan, it's actually it's a fairly uh, it's a bit of a minority sport in Japan. So perhaps he was perhaps he was right. But I think the core of what he was getting at this is back in the 1930s, early 1940s is quite similar to some of the work that goes on now, um, trying to link up psychoanalysis with Buddhism. The work of people like Mark Epstein, um, Jack Engler, um, and others. I see quite a lot of what Kassar was trying to get at um, being fulfilled and worked through in in their writing. Was he seen to be religious at the time? Because, of course, in Japan, religion itself is a would be a kind of contested mm. word. Mm. Was he seen to be religious even at the time that he was practicing in the 1930s, 40s? Some of his students, it, it, it's, it's often difficult to make a division. It's probably silly to try to make a division, actually, between the extent to which Kosawa was religious and the extent to which he was a, a man of his times. There were therapists like him and and others working in Japan in the 30s and early 40s who saw it as their role to be a kind of um, kindly but actually quite straightforwardly didactic father figure for their clients. So rather than being the kind of classic uh, mirror as a therapist where you simply reflect the client back to themselves and you don't have much of your own input, Kosawa would um, give quite heavy advice some of his uh, students described him as, as being quite motherly. Um, there were other therapists around the time. One of them, I'm thinking of another psychoanalyst, who would invite his clients, young male clients, out to his countryside home where him and his wife lived, spend the weekend with them and fulfill the father role that they'd never mm-hmm. had. Um, and so after the war, a lot of people criticised Kosawa and others for having that kind of really um, heavy uh, paternalism in their work. Some of them said that was because he was a Buddhist. Others said that's because he's just a man of his era. The theory behind therapy in Japan at this point, uh, also the theory behind hypnosis actually, was that it would only work if it's practiced by a superior on an inferior. So women 
couldn't be hypnotists or therapists um, for men because they couldn't give that kind of guiding element that a superior mm-hmm. could give to an inferior. So Cosell was a product of his time, both in that kind of paternalistic sense, I think, but also um, his students would have recognised him pretty straightforwardly as a Buddhist. And they said, this is a disaster because psychoanalysis is supposed to be a science. You have to keep the two things separate. Cosell's own view was that in the consulting room, there'd be no talk of Buddhism. But after your consultation, you could come next door, have a cup of tea. He might unroll a couple of Buddhist sutras and maybe talk you through a bit of Buddhism, if you were interested, as some of his kind of young clients were. So I think he would have identified um, as both. And his view was always that um, psychoanalysis is a proper science and Buddhism, as it really should be understood, were really operated completely in tandem. And that if Freud had had a less narrow view of what religion meant, because I thought Freud was kind of shackled to a Judeo-Christian understanding of religion, and a very narrow one even at that, if Freud had had a wider understanding of what religion really was, he'd have seen that psychoanalysis and religion were really two sides of the same coin. That's an interesting idea as well, because if we broaden our scope now from Japan to general um, understandings of the relationship between religion and the side disciplines, the question that this particular case raises for me is, how do you isolate religion then? Um for example, in palliative care and end-of-life care now, there is it's quite common, I, I think, um, especially in certain countries, to have to incorporate mindfulness or meditations as part of palliative care. We've already seen now in the Kosawa example of someone who seems to work between um, religiously prescribed rules. He's also a father. There's a kind of cultural construction of gender there as well with his kind of paternalism that you could talk talk about. So how do we isolate what is religion here? If you were to see meditation as part of palliative care practice, would you see that as religious or a cultural formation or a product of its time? Does the question make sense? Yes, yeah, it, it does. Um, I suppose people are thinking through this in Japan in the context of end-of-life care um, and also in the context of disaster care, say after the um, tsunami, earthquake, tsunami, nuclear meltdown disasters in 2011 in Japan. In the aftermath of that, there was quite a lot of um, work done by Buddhists. And they've been thinking through how do we pursue this kind of work and not um, not upset the people that we're dealing with. Um, I think their view would be that all the care they offer is religious, but how they present it. The, what can seem like quite simple things. What are they going to wear while they go about this care? Whether it's on a, a vihara ward, which is a Buddhist end of life care ward, or whether it's working in disaster care. Are you going to come in sort of civilian clothing? Are you going to dress in your Buddhist robes? Are you going to use um, Buddhist language, prayers, rituals, or are you going to um, use the language of psychology and psychotherapy? What they've found is. I think that their, their, their key aim is that you meet people where they are. Some people want all the trappings of Buddhism. That's what is going to make them feel comfortable because it's what's familiar. They absolutely don't want to be talked to after a disaster or towards the end of life about their feelings. Not a conversation that they want to have. Um, so for those sorts of people, you can move more towards these familiar signs and symbols of classical, you know, religion as it were. But for others, Still, 
in still really doing religious care, you can now call it spiritual care instead. In Japan, they make a distinction where you won't have, you know, your Buddhist uniform on and you won't be using that sort of language. Instead, you'll shift more towards the language of uh, psychotherapy and counselling. Um, if that's what you think people want. And in order to get onto some public hospital wards in Japan, you have to do that because there's a clear separation in Japan being made of religion and state. But this coming together of religion and the side disciplines, in the training, you now have um, clinical chaplains being trained in Japan from all sorts of religious backgrounds. That coming together allows them to gently shift the emphasis depending on who they're dealing with. It's For them, it's religiously inspired, so it's all religious care. But what it looks like to, as it were, the consumer or the receiver of it, it's endlessly flexible. And I think that's what they see as being so useful about it. And I don't think they would make any fundamental distinction between religious and non-religious there. It's about the nuances of presentation and perception. But how about when you take the case of Japan and try and apply it elsewhere, try and apply it in the contemporary situation in UK, for example, or mm. in countries that, that do not have that very specific um, set of circumstances that mm. we're speaking about there? Mm. How would you isolate religion in those cases? Is this just an East-West divide? No, no, no. I, I, I think something very similar goes on. I, I recently wrote a piece for Eon magazine on end-of-life care um, at two hospices in Edinburgh and the concept of spirituality and whether that's useful or not to people. Um, and I was surprised to find a lot of the interviewees say that spirituality is actually not a very useful concept at all because it carries so much of the baggage of um, religion. And for a lot of people, if you are religious and you just want to see the chaplain or whoever the representative might be, you know, you're, you're fairly clear on who you want to go to. But for the vast majority of other people, neither religion nor spirituality is something they want to hear about. But what you do instead is you find ways of being with people, forms of care. So um, listening, closeness, sometimes um, even physical forms of care, like a, like a bed bath, whatever it might be, um, that from a certain perspective, yes, you could talk about it as being, Religious. It has, there's a focus there on being, on attentiveness to the person you're with, as opposed to just doing or doing for them, you know, rushing around um, a hospice ward. But you're not employing any of the traditional language of religion or spirituality. A lot of the workers I talked to said that people would just be put off by that kind of thing because mm. they'd say, look, it's too late for me now to go on some big search for the meaning of life and the meaning of the world. Um, I need something that goes beyond concepts or that goes beyond a fundamental change in who I am and how I look at the world. I need something that some people would argue is actually close to the core of religion or religious tradition like Christianity, which is love and acceptance and showing that kind of thing. So I think in some of the end of life care, that is more what people are doing than getting bogged down in the language of religion mm. and spirituality. Uh, again, one of the professors I interviewed at a, a St. Columbus hospice said, it's really about training nurses in how to be with their patients rather than just do for them. You know what I mean? Just run around changing sheets and whatnot. Mm. Actually learning how to be with them is, is what they want. And whether the language of spirituality helps or not, that's really a kind of secondary consideration. Well, that's interesting because that also gives us a sense of something we spoke about at the beginning, the, the idea of tension uh, uh, between um, 
different ideas of religion, spirituality, and then the side disciplines. And it's interesting here because we see for the first time that tension between those who receive the care as opposed to be seeing the tensions on an institutional level mm-hmm. um, or in how they've been interpreted by practitioners, if that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. I think there was also a previous religious studies podcast by um, Dr. Harold Koenig um, from the from from Duke, and he'd spoken about how uh, I think the talk was on religion, spirituality, and healing and health, mm. uh, speaking about particularly coping and how religious belief helps in coping, mm. um, which seems interesting. Um, a final point of tension uh, then: can you give us or can you think of a specific example? when the idea of healing itself is defined differently from a religious standpoint and then from the side discipline standpoint, because, of course, they might be working with different ideas of what is transgressive or what is disorderly, and so their ideas of what health is might also differ, or their idea of healing might also differ. I suppose that's true, yes. Um, There's an interesting parallel between working on religion and the side disciplines on the one hand and working on trans, what's called transcultural psychiatry mm-hmm. and psychotherapy on the other. Um, because in that kind of latter area, what you find is that any form of psychotherapy, almost any form of psychotherapy, is based on assumptions about what a human being is, what's ideal for them, what's good for them. Uh, I suppose a psychotherapist might respond by saying, actually, that ideal is something that gets generated over time in the relationship between the therapist uh, and the client. The therapist isn't there to say at the outset, here's the kind of person I'm trying to turn you into. So I accept that possible objection there. But I think there's a a deeper sense in which there are certain assumptions, at least, in play. Um, And if you transfer that back over to religion and side distance, one of the things I try to do, I have a, a framework that I try to put together to work out exactly what bothers me about this relationship and how I want to investigate it. And I think one is um, the nature of the human person. And so what does it mean to be healed? Does it, does it mean to go back out and be once again a more, once again a kind of a coping, productive member of your society? Or does it mean to go back out into society and have a more of a prophetic role and say, actually, this is wrong and that's wrong. And the reason why I suffer from stress or anxiety or depression isn't just that I'm wrong or I'm failing to cope, is that the world around me is disordered. Those sorts of judgments which border on the moral mm-hmm. um, are the sorts of things that would be comfortable to people with what you might call you know, a religious background um, and less so to people of, of perhaps of a, of a more secular orientation. Social justice doesn't, you know, social justice can cross both lines, obviously. Um, but I think in forms of psychotherapy and, and healing, which have more of an explicit religious orientation, that element of, of, of judgment, which I suppose now is more pushed out onto the outside world because the damage of internalizing that kind of judgment has become much more clear. Um, that kind of judgment is a little bit more, um, common. You see it more often. But one, I suppose one final thing on, on healing, which is, one of the things that can, I think, can undermine healing is the difficulty when religion and side disciplines come together of people making mistakes about the kind of language that they're using. So there's a, a writer called Jack Engler who writes about Buddhism and psychoanalysis that said there are all these key terms in Buddhism which can be really badly misinterpreted um, 
if you're not careful and if Buddhism and, and, and side disciplines come together in the wrong way. For example, um, uh, Buddhist concept like no self can be easily sort of taken up and used by someone who has very low self-esteem and finds the idea of there being a fundamental unreality about themselves comforting. But they're using it counterphobically. They're, they're using it in the wrong way. And actually they're digging themselves a deeper hole by using the idea of no self to kind of um, justify very, very low feelings about themselves. And kind of wallow in it. He says, uh, he has a really nice line, which I think cuts across a lot of what we're talking about. He says, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. So in his scheme, there is a role for the side disciplines in clarifying a person's sense of themselves, building up um, an ego in the sense of a, a healthy, being a healthy single subject, not being kind of narcissistic and arrogant and self-obsessed, but being a healthy subject who is then able to cope with what Buddhism would say is the ontological fact that there is no self. You know what I mean? Um, and it's mistakes over over language that can come up when religion and side disciplines get together that I think can often be quite damaging, that give people either false hope or the wrong sort of hope, or just confuse them worse than they were confused before, and in turn can either undermine healing in particular contexts or can just undermine their growth in a bigger way. Which is why I think interrogating the use of language in this dialogue is, is such an important task. Mm-hmm. I'm giving an eye on the time. This is this will be the last question. Um, it strikes me this idea of um, being nuanced, being careful about how language is used. Would you say this is one direction in which you hope to see the field grow? And that's the last question. What direction do you think this broader field that you're working in can grow? Specifically, of course, I, I mean, for religious studies, where can we go next? Um, I wouldn't presume to tell religious studies where to go. <laughs> where to, well, I'm just a plain old historian. But um, in, in response to the question, which is a which is a really good one. I think what I would probably like to see and encourage is more of a creative and honest focus on the antagonisms that arise when religion and the side disciplines get together. Because I think we hear a lot, both within academia, but also the wider world of publishing, YouTube, everywhere else, of the complementarities. There's a great book by Francis Spufford, Unapologetic, why, why, despite everything, Christianity still makes great emotional sense or excellent emotional sense. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. Highly recommended. But um, that kind of talk uh, about how religion and our understanding by the side disciplines of what a human person is, how these things work together so well, how one can be a great um, means of explanation for the other, how one can draw a person into the other. I think all that's true and all of it's wonderful, but I think there needs to be more of a focus on where these things can actually um, break down, where they're offering views of the world which simply aren't compatible and people shouldn't be told that they are, or where mistakes, confusions can arise that actually cause people suffering. Um, and by trying to investigate those better and, and clarify them, be honest about them, I think the field gets more interesting and less harm is done to people as a result. So I think that's the one big area I'd like to see more happen. On that on that important note, um, thank you very much, Dr. Chris Harding, for joining us at the Religious Studies Project. Thanks so much to Critica and to Christopher Harding for that. And also thanks so much to our generous sponsors, who we didn't mention last week at all. We are sorry. 
We are sorry. Um, that is the British Association for the Study of Religions, the International Association for the History of Religions, and the North American Association for the Study of Religion. Thank you so much for your generous sponsorship of the RSP this week and every week. <laughs> nice. If you want to sponsor the Religious Studies Project, you can do so by using our Amazon affiliate links. That way we get a small percentage of whatever you spend money on, be it toy dinosaurs, seed potatoes, uh, Pokemon balls, guitar pedals, guitar pedals. We're looking at you, Craig Martin. <laughs> cat accessories. Um, whatever it is you spend, we get a small cut. So basically, you're taking money from the man and you're giving it to us to make these wonderful podcasts, mm. which you get for free every week directly into your lug hole. Exactly. It might also be that you work for the man in some capacity. And if you would like to advertise with us, that is something that we're um, exploring at the moment. Um, it's up in full swing. Um, it's another way of uh, supporting us. And we've got a, a few big plans for how we're going to, you know, what's going to be the next step in the RSP journey. So, yeah, if you've got a Again, a book coming out or some other um, sort of product that you might have a, a university, a course that you want to promote, that sort of thing. A conference. If there's space and a budget for advertising, do consider us um, as a venue for that. And uh, Sammy uh, will be happy to hear from you. And yeah, drop us a line with that or any other comments, queries or questions to uh, editors at religiousstudiesproject.com as ever. Next week, it's an interview that I recorded with uh, Miranda Simmons and Mike Altman about reinventing graduate study um, and the study of religion. Um, so we talk a lot about podcasts, for example, in that interview. It should be good. Really interesting. We haven't had a, a pedagogy episode for a little while, so that's great to hear. In the meantime, don't forget to come back for the response on Thursday. Uh, don't forget to enjoy the Opportunities Digest um, on Wednesday and come back next week. And as ever, thanks for listening.